Welcome to Retina Health for Life from the President's Corner, brought to you by the American Society of Retina Specialists. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Murray, coming to you from Miami. On each episode, we'll bring you inspiring conversations about your sight and the special role the retina plays in making healthy vision possible. We'll hear from expert retina specialists, as well as directly from patients about living life to the fullest with retinal disease. Join us and learn how to safeguard your retina health for life. Welcome to Retina Health for Life. I'm Dr. Timothy Murray coming to you from Miami, Florida. On this episode, we're going to talk about retinopathy of prematurity, which is a retinal condition that can affect premature infants and is, in fact, the most common cause of vision loss in children. To discuss this condition, I'm happy to introduce my friend and my colleague, Dr. Paul Chan, who is an expert in retinopathy of prematurity and who is the professor and chair at Illinois Eye and Ear Infirmary at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Chan. Uh, thank you, Dr. Murray, and, and thanks so much for having me here to talk to you all about ROP. So, Paul, you and I know that there have been amazing advances in the treatment of pediatric retinal diseases, and you've led much of those advances in the treatment of retinopathy of prematurity. So, it used to be the most common blinding eye disease, and it may still be, but I think the take-home message for us is really going to be the journey of the evaluation of these children and the thresholds for treatment and the advances in treatment. So could you tell us a little bit about what our families should know about retinopathy of prematurity? Very, very important. And, and I think you mentioned this, that you know, this is a journey, right, for your child and also for you as a family. Uh, and ROP is a condition that really affects children throughout their entire li you know, lifespan. So what is ROP and, and, and who does it affect? Well, if you have a premature child, right, specifically if you have someone who's less than or equal to, to 30 weeks gestational age at birth, right, or if they're light at birth, so less than or equal to 1,500 grams, uh, those are the children in the United States that we screen for ROP. Now, having said that, and we can, we can talk about this, but there's an entirely different subset in other countries, like in lower middle income countries, that is a, I would say it's a different discussion, right? You know, here, let's focus on the children that we see here in the US. Um, so these children are at risk for ROP, and what happens, right? So why? Well, what, what happens in ROP, it's, in a, it's a condition that affects the developing retina, okay? So what is the retina? It's, it's the part, of, it's in the back of the eye. And like everything else, if you're born young, things aren't fully developed, right? So as if you were born full term. And the, the retina vessels, you know, they grow flat like this and they can stop, right? And what happens then is that new vessels can form, right? Because of you develop this, what we call ischemia and the new vessels can then, you know, bleed or what, what more concerning, they can lead to something called a retinal detachment, right? And a retinal detachment will lead to, to permanent blindness, right? So uh, it's really, really important that children who are born at risk for ROP are screened and screened appropriately because blindness is preventable in this condition. Well, one of the things that, that you've talked about recently within the United States is this shift toward what we call micro premature infants, 
What's a micro preemie and are they at greater risk? And, and do we look at them the same way? What's unique about these babies? Yeah, that, you know, that's a great discussion, um, great comment. Um, the micro preemies really are the, 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 the lightest, lightest of all children. And, you know, generally speaking, they're less than 750 grams. They can be less than 500 grams. Um, and these children can develop really aggressive, uh, significant disease. So what we historically have called aggressive posterior ROP uh, or aggressive retinopathy prematurity. Now, these children, when you look at the studies um, with traditional laser treatment, uh, don't do as well with laser, right? So we can talk about new therapies and new treatment options for them, but can now be treated, okay? But the, the simple issue is that children inherently, they can be, uh, they can be saved. Um, even younger and, and even lighter. But then, why does that matter for us as ophthalmologists? Because then they're at risk for developing ROP. So it seems like the more that you move to, to help these very, very tiny infants survive, typically using aggressive oxygen therapy in the neonatal intensive care unit, that puts those children at a greater risk for retinopathy prematurity besides being so young and, and so tiny. Is that correct? Yeah, so you know, if you can keep children alive and you're giving them a lot of oxygen, um, and this is this is the big debate, right? I think this is, there's a lot of discussion around this. Uh, as you keep children alive even younger, right, and even lighter, then they are going to be at risk for ROP. Now, having said that, there's also a lot of discussion around if you titrate the oxygen. Primary prevention, um, you know, primary prevention is where you if you can potentially control oxygen and regulate it, then maybe you can control potentially the severity of the retinopathy. Um, but again, we, we know historically that if you, in these micropremies, they're at increased risk for more advanced retinopathy. So Dr. Chan, for, for you and I in the pediatric retina space, our patients often can't talk to us or tell us yeah. they're having a problem, and certainly these premature infants cannot. So can you take me through what a screening exam is and how you establish the diagnosis of retinopathy of prematurity? Yeah, so like I mentioned, if your child is less than or equal to 30 weeks, they're gonna get an exam. So, uh, and it's important. This is actually really, really critical because it's a team effort, right? It's not just the ophthalmologist, the neonatologist, or the NICU team. It's also the families that we all have to be together in this journey for these children that if they're at risk, you, then you should ask your, your, your NICU team, you know, when do I get my exam for my child? And it's really important. Okay, so when do they get their exam? Well, they either get them at four weeks after birth or at 31 weeks, you know, depending on when they were born. Um, and then what happens is that the ophthalmologist will be informed, the ophthalmology team, and then we'll do the exams when we're asked to. They'll get dilating drops, okay, because we have to make the pupils bigger in order for us to do our examinations. And then either we'll look directly with something called the indirect ophthalmoscope, which is a headset we, we put on our head, and a lens, and then we'll document our findings, right? And what we document are zones, stages, and whether or not uh, your baby has plus disease. So zones are generally divided into three zones, and we sort of view that as the geography, how much is the retina developed already, um, and then the stages, to a certain extent, we can view it as a level of severity. So there's stage one, there's stage two, three, there's four, which is divided into A and B, and currently stage five, right, which 
um, in, in future form will to be divided into A, B, and C. Um, but four and five are retinal detachments, and the lower the stage, the less severe the disease, and the higher the zone, the better off your child is. Okay, so just sort of keep that in mind. Now, we document that, and based on what we see and document is when we're gonna determine when the next exam is. In addition to being able to do the exams through this indirect ophthalmoscopy in the lens, you oftentimes, especially nowadays, uh, see uh, ophthalmologists and, and NICU teams using special cameras. So digital cameras to document, but also to use that as the examination tool uh, through either telemedicine or even directly at the bedside. So it's very interesting, you know, I think when when I started, the, the ability to image, to actually take pictures of the eye was very limited, but it's phenomenal how far the technology has come. And you've started to incorporate an artificial intelligence review of these, of these images, hoping to assist the retinal specialist that's looking and making the correct diagnosis. Is, is that where you think the future is going for us within imaging? Yeah. I, I... You know, obviously I'm biased on this discussion. Um, you know, I've had the good fortune of working with really great people in the uh, imaging and informatics for ROP consortium with Mike Chang and Pete Campbell, Jay Shrikapathy Kramer, and so many others, um, including Nina Barakal down in Miami. Uh, but, you know, that, to, in my mind, that is the future of where we're going now. Having said that, AI is such a hot topic. Right, and it's it's ubiquitous. You know, we talk about it. It's 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 in medicine everywhere. Um, the way that we view it is that it's really more of an assistive technology. Uh, it'll be a metric that we use to help us with our diagnosis, help us educate, um, and also provide increased access uh, to, for these children at risk for ROP. You know, especially in in places where there isn't a skilled ophthalmologist or a healthcare provider to perform that on-site exam or even to perform telemedicine. Right. I think that these these tools, right, the, this technology is definitely the future and will in, will be part of our clinical decision making. I think it's important. So you mentioned the indirect ophthalmoscope, putting the light on and using the focusing lens. I think almost all of our colleagues still do that, even when they use advanced imaging where they may work, look at photographs or the fluorescein angiography where they look at the blood vessels in the eye with the dye injection. And you've most recently talked about taking one of the major advances in adult imaging, which is the OCT or optical coherence tomography into the NICU and the OR for these, for these infants. Where do you think that may take us? Yeah, again, that, that's another technology and in, in, in the group at Duke and the group in Oregon. There are many people looking at this specifically. I mean, that's also gonna be uh, very, very useful for us in one, identifying disease, I think also developing prognostic tools um, for how these children will, will develop functionally. Um, but again, that's down the pipeline. You know, again, the, these are expensive machines. Um, they're not commonly in clinical care right now. Uh, there's a lot of research and great research groups looking at this and that will also be the future. Now, having said that as well, when you talk about these artificial intelligence algorithms, there's a great opportunity to use the AI systems for these special techniques like OCT and geography or just OCT uh, to, again, develop uh, predictive models. 
So it seems like the most important thing for a, a, a baby at risk in the NICU is the screening exam. But are screening exams ever normal? And if they're not normal, do they have to be in a way that the baby's treated immediately? Or do you watch the baby? Tell us a little bit about what you can expect if you're a parent in a premature infant with, that has the first screening exam. And, and this, again, this is what we, we talk to parents about. You know, one, Tim, you, you had an excellent point, which is currently our traditional model is that bedside exam. And that screening exam is really critical for the long-term health of your child. And the initial exam very often is normal, right? We won't see anything because the developing retina and what we're seeing in terms of the changes that happen from retinopathy prematurity may not be there yet, right? So they may have what we call immature retina. Right? And you're not seeing that what we call stage one or that area of, of uh, ischemia, which means that we don't see any retinal vessels in the peripheral part of that retina. Okay, So the initial exam may be normal, but again, we have very clear screening guidelines. Right, So you know, if a patient, for example, is born at 24 weeks and I examine them at 31 weeks and then there's a normal exam, then I may say, okay, well, I'll see them in two weeks. But at that second exam, they may start to show changes, right? And then it continues to progress. Now, what's interesting as well is that to a certain extent, the tempo of disease can be very predictable, right? Or we, we know when things start to happen and move. And generally speaking, it's around 37 weeks of gestational age, and we start to see these changes, and these are when these patients need, need, may need treatment. So the most critical part of what's happening is, again, this team effort, this collaborative effort between us, the eye care provider, the NICU team, and most importantly, you as the family, right? You as the parents to make sure that we're getting the exams on time um, and when you're discharged that you're bringing your baby in for the exams as an outpatient until, you know, and I, what I call is graduation day, you know, when we know that the, the vasculature is is pretty much almost fully developed and that your child will be safe from developing a retinal detachment. So one of the things you've also focused on is that we've moved our treatments earlier than we have in the past. That's one. And two, we went from using these very kind of complex freezing therapies called cryotherapy to laser therapy, which was more focused to the use of these new anti-VEGFs. Can you take us through why we're treating children earlier and how we're having this evolution in therapy and why we're doing this? Yeah, so let's go to why we're treating children earlier. Um, you know, the, the initial studies that looked at treatment for ROP focused on something called threshold disease. And you'll, you know, if you Google it and you, you, you'll see that what these definitions are. And that, that was based off of some, uh, a study called the cryo uh, ROP study. Okay, but as, as we sort of shifted in, 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 in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, um, there's a study called the Early Treatment for ROP Study, okay? And that really talked about uh, treating at something called type 1 pre-threshold, which is basically when we treat now. And, and the, way, the easiest way to think about it is that if you have some, something called stage 3, so remember we talked about stages, um, so stage three in zone one, then you treat, or if you have something called plus disease, then you treat. But generally speaking now, that's what our treatment criteria is, 
which is earlier than threshold, okay? Now, having said that, our traditional treatment modality was laser, and that has been the case for really almost 20 years now. Um, but then about 15 years ago, there was this introduction of uh, what we call anti-vascular endothelial growth factor medications, where we injected it into the eye, into the vitreous cavity, so we call it intravitreal anti-VEGF therapy. Okay, now, when do we use that? Well, there's still a lot of discussion around when we should use that, th those medications versus when we should use laser. Okay, but the, the great thing about our options today is that we have options. Right? Historically, when you had really aggressive disease, like Dr. Murray was talking about the, the micropremies, so these, these patients who develop aggressive posterior ROP, with laser, those were challenging. Right? Nowadays, uh, many of us will consider using anti-VEGF treatments because it stops the disease. Right? But there's a lot we don't know. Okay? So there's been an evolution, um, but the, the best thing about this is that we do have options for treating, we do have better options, um, and we have better options for saving sight for these children at risk. So I find also that, that our families in the NICU, the, the mother and the father or the grandparents, tend to be very involved in the care of their child. And I, I know you focus on spending a lot of time discussing what the status of the disease is for the child and what the treatment options are. Having said that, I think many of us have followed our international colleagues in moving more and more and more toward anti-VEGF therapy, maybe as a primary treatment, and then using laser later. How do you discuss these sort of really complex issues with, with the family? Yeah, and, and these are complex issues because I think right now there's really no uh, consensus, I think, as a community around when to use laser specifically versus when to use anti-VEGF. I think that there's consensus around when, when we've historically treated, which is type 1 pre-threshold, but things have really shifted, right? And uh, for me personally, right, and, and this is my own preference, I will still use laser very often, right? I, and I, I have those conversations with the family about the advantages and disadvantages, or the, rather the advantages and what we don't know about anti-VEGF therapy. Now, in terms of your discussion about the international arena, um, a lot of times there isn't a laser available, right? And anti-VEGF is all we have to actually treat. And, you know, you're left with this decision of uh, do nothing or because we can't do anything or give the medication. And really, there's no option at that point. One of the tricky things, though, that we have to consider around anti-VEGF isn't just whether or not it works, right? We know that it works in promoting regression of disease, all right? It makes the ROP and the stage three, and it makes the plus disease resolve and get better. Um, but we also have to consider what it's the long-term follow-up, right? So again, Darius Mushvegi and, and many others, including yourself, you know, we talk about this a lot around, okay, after we do the injection, when do we see them again? How long do we see them for? Because what we do know now that we didn't know 15 years ago is that you can get reactivation later, you can get this persistent avascular retina, um, you can get potentially later reactivation with retinal detachments, and we don't know exactly when that happens all the time. We don't have a lot of clarity around that. The other thing that we talk about is, well, does the medication seep into the systemic circulation? Does it cause some issue around normal angiogenesis and normal development of, of your child? 
We don't know if that happens, but we also don't have any definitive evidence that it causes any um, any harm, right? So I think that we have to have a discussion around that as well. Whereas with laser, we know what happens. We, it's more predictable to us to a certain extent. But again, there we know that there's a significant fail rate in very aggressive disease, right? So what are the options, right? We have the option of anti-VEGF in many of those cases. One of the things that that leads to is something that you've you've really been an advocate for is that these preemies, once they mature, become young adults, we're following them forever, irrespective of really what their primary therapy is. And we've known that there are late complications to ROP with whatever therapeutic strategy was used when they were in the NICU. So is that your strategy going forward, that you're going to continue to watch these children? How, how often do they need to be seen? Um, what are you looking for? What are some of the issues in, in, in premature infants that do really well? Do they have differences in how nearsighted they are? Do they have higher incidence of high eye pressures? Do they get early cataracts? Can you talk to us a little bit about what to expect as they grow up? Yeah, so, so Tim, it's all of the above, as, as you know, right? And, and I think that what, one of the things we emphasize to families and for, for the families listening here is that ROP is a lifelong condition, right? It's, it doesn't just stop when, you know, we say to a certain extent, you graduated from my care because your vasculature looks great. Um, if you've had ROP, uh, especially if you've had stage three or even regressed disease, uh, you need to be followed forever, right? Your retina, you're still at risk for developing thinning of the retina, you're still at risk for developing cataract and, you know, glaucoma, things that Dr. Murray just mentioned. Um, but from a retina perspective, we have seen changes in the peripheral retina, right? Even in conditions, even children who've never had treatment. So even if you've never had laser, or you've never required treatment, you can still develop changes that may need some sort of treatment in the future. So it's important to follow up with your eye care specialist, especially your retina specialist, your pediatric ophthalmologist. Um, in terms of the treatments, now, you know, this is something that, again, you touched on. Um, studies have shown that if you're treated with laser, it's a, you have a higher chance of be, becoming myopic or highly myopic than if you've been treated with this anti-VEGF therapy. Why does that matter, right? Because laser is ablative, so it destroys the peripheral retina. Um, can you develop late complications right, like retinal detachment? Absolutely. Okay, so just as much as you can develop later issues in life after laser treatment or after anti-VEGF, you also have the same issues around uh, later uh, issues happening after laser. So, you know, when we're talking, it, all, it, it sounds like this is an incredibly scary disease and, and these, these infants are, are not going to do well. But in fact, that's the biggest change for us over this last decade, right, is how well these babies actually do not just in terms of the survival and developmentally, but really these children can have excellent vision and, and normal sight. Can you tell us a little bit about, about what the families can expect when their babies are, are, are doing well? Yeah, and, and this is, you know, as, as with all of us who, who treat kids, um, this is really one of the joys of, of our, our profession and of our careers and of our lives when we treat children and, and help families get through this together. Um, so, you know, when, when children, you know, get through this period where they have this acute phase of ROP and say they need treatment and we treat it and we stop it, um, then 
you you more more likely than than not will do very well and you will live a normal life and you will you will see and you will have vision right and you prevented your child from going blind so what to expect i mean you can expect you know a child that will you know if everything else is going well will see well will 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 do well in you know for the rest of their lives and you'll probably see us for the rest of your lives and those are the things that we look forward to right so making sure that your child is safe is not going to go blind and was managed appropriately and a lot of it's because of you right because of the families because you're bringing them in because you're making sure that they're 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 following up with their examinations and they're getting treated appropriately uh, also you know taking consideration with the pediatric ophthalmologist for things like amblyopia management making sure that they're maximized in terms of their vision um, so what can you expect you can expect your child not to go blind if things are managed appropriately and treated appropriately. What an amazing change. I mean, when I started, and I'm a little bit older than you are, you know, the treatments were not uncommonly associated with a child that would end up losing vision in an eye from a complex retinal detachment. I think in the last, you know, almost 10 years in the major centers in the United States for babies that are born into these major centers, that's almost unheard of. What a change from, from most children potentially being blind to most children, if not all children, having good anatomy and good sight. I think that story is, is incredibly exciting and really highlights what you and others in pediatric retina and particularly an ROP have done for these, for these children. Yeah, no, thanks, Tim. And, and again, you know, it's, it's a collaborative effort among everyone. Um, and again, we, you know, we can help most children. Obviously, there are going to be some children who, no matter what we do, will, will have issues with their vision. Um, but if we can anatomically uh, maximize their potential, then, you know, that's a win. And that's, a, that's, that's uh, you know, promoting good eye health for your child. And those are some big wins. I'd like to thank Dr. Paul Chan for speaking us, to us today on Retinopathy of Prematurity. Paul, one of the leading experts, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Murray. Thanks for tuning in to Retina Health for Life from the President's Corner. You can watch and listen to more episodes on the ASRS YouTube channel and on popular podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast and Spotify. For even more information about safeguarding your vision for a lifetime, visit asrs.org slash patients and follow ASRS on both Facebook and Twitter. Retina Health for Life is made possible in part through generous support from the Foundation of the American Society of Retina Specialists, Allergan, Genentech, Novartis, and Regeneron.